0: For being here this morning. If I have not already introduced myself, my name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen, and um, those are great songs to sing together. Amen. What did we think about that new song, All Glory Be to Christ? Nice, it's a great song. I love that song. I really do hope that, um, that when, when you find yourself on New Year's Eve hearing the tune to Auld Lang Syne uh, and you don't know the words, because you probably don't know all of those words, nobody does, that you instead, um, that your heart and your mind would be drawn towards the glory of Christ. Uh, if you're here for the first time, welcome. It's so lovely to have you. Um, if you've got a Bible in front of you, I would invite you this morning to turn to Mark chapter 13 is where we will spend a little bit of time together this morning. We just finished a couple of weeks talking about giving and generosity and stewardship and money, and I'm thankful for Tim's work last week as I was away, but I am back here this morning to be with you in the beginning of our Advent season. Um, As you know, there's already one candle that is lit. We will light a candle each week as we prepare for that morning on Christmas day when we celebrate what's called Advent. If you're unfamiliar with the word Advent, Advent means coming um, and it is a celebration of and a waiting for the coming of Christ. And so we call the first Advent or the first coming of Christ is at Christmas time, And all of us are waiting until December 25th, where we will then celebrate with presents and all sorts of things, the coming of Christ or the first Advent. Um, But the Advent season is also a a, a recognition about the second coming of Christ, which we will get into in just a moment. Now, it's supposed to be a season of waiting, a season where in which we sort of patiently wait. Wait, but very few of our lives are filled with patience right now. Uh, Most of our lives feel like uh, they're jam packed with events and things to do and lists to check off and cards to send. And the Christmas season can be a very lonely season and a very busy season. And it is true that it feels like the Christmas season starts the day after Halloween um, in this city, right? It just gets moved back and back. Halloween's maybe best gift right now is that it holds the line um, and keeps Christmas from retreating into the summer months. Now, traditionally in the Christian church, uh, the Advent season preceded the Christmas season. So traditionally in the Christian church, the Advent season started um, a few Sundays before Christmas, and then it was a season of waiting, and the Christmas season officially starts Uh, for the Christian church on December 25th, or Christmas Eve into December 25th. And then that ends up being, the Christmas season ends up being 12 days of celebration, where if you're very fortunate enough to find the right person, your true love will give you a lot of birds. So many birds birds over the course of 12 days. Um, That's not what we do anymore. In Western society, we typically extend the whole season into just one. We call it the Christmas season, and many people in our city are going to be putting their trees curbside the day after Christmas in preparation for the new year. That's kind of normal in these parts, but in the church, it's a season of waiting and then a season of celebration. And this morning, we will focus on primarily the second coming or the second advent of Christ. The rest of the time in December as a church, we'll look in preparation for that first advent and we'll talk about the coming of Christmas, but today we start with the second advent. I want to begin by talking about the importance of staying awake, We all like good sleep and we all recognize that good sleep is important to get, but there are some times when it's important to stay awake. If you get a concussion, for instance, one of the things that instantly will happen is people will try to make sure that you stay awake. Or if you're watching small children, there's a good chance that you need to be staying awake. Uh, or when I was a young high school, just out of high school student, I found myself leaving a concert, driving home, getting pulled over on the road, and being forced to take a DUI, uh, not a DUI, uh, a test uh, uh, to see if I was sober. And I was sober. I hadn't drunk, drank anything. I was under 21. I'm a good Christian boy. And, um, but I did get pulled over, and the officer pulled me over because I was driving while tired. And struggling to stay awake, which can be just as dangerous as drunk driving. There are times when staying awake is absolutely essential. Like if you're a high school boy and you're at a sleepover, you do not want to be the first person to fall asleep. I can assure you that will always end poorly. It's good to get good sleep, but sometimes staying awake is essential. And the reason that I'm highlighting staying awake and its importance is because when we think about the second advent or the second coming of Christ, as we'll look at this morning, Jesus really emphasizes the importance of Christians being an alert, awake group of people. We love the first advent, and we'll talk about it the rest of the month. We love it. It's so sentimental. It's so wonderful. You get, right, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The, the, the cattle are lowing. The, the, there's no baby, the cry, no crying. He makes the serene, it's probably not true, but it's this beautiful, serene picture of straw and hay and babies and Bethlehem and angels and kings. And it's beautiful. We love the first advent. We love it. We can drive around the city and see nativity scenes. We love the first advent. What I want you to hold on to this morning is that while we love the first advent, the second advent is equally important. It doesn't often get as much notoriety or as much, uh, 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 it's not talked about quite as much as the first advent, especially in our world today, but the second advent is equally important. And if there is no second advent, then there really is no hope. And we'll talk more about that as we move forward. But I want you to see that the first Advent is beautiful and the second Advent is equally important. And you'll see this theme in the text this morning of Jesus reminding us that our responsibility in light of the second Advent is to stay awake. Something I hope some of you will do through the sermon in our time together as well. All right. Uh, Mark chapter 13 is where we will be. If you've got your Bible, you should have had time to turn there. It will also be on the screen in front of you. So this is Mark chapter 13. Uh, Jesus here is talking about his return, his second coming, if you will. And this is what it says in Mark 13, just verses 32 through 37. Jesus said, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all stay awake. As Jesus in this particular text begins to talk about his second coming, he just has finished talking about the destruction of the temple and he looks through that day to this future day where in which he would Return as he promised. Here's how I want to break down uh, the text this morning, and this will be my outline for those of you who are taking notes. I want to talk about the promise of the second advent or the second coming, the preparation for the second advent, and then the point of the second advent. So the promise, the preparation, and then the point. Let's begin by talking about the promise of the second advent. When Jesus is speaking here and teaching his disciples, he already knows that he is going to die, and he knows that that moment of his death will come with some great gifts. But he looks beyond that moment to a moment in the future where in which Christ will return. Christians have always historically confessed in our great creeds that Christ will return as he promised. And here Christ is teaching about his return, and he's telling us that we ought to stay awake. But there's an important recognition in this very promise that he makes. Two things that we can be sure of. The first thing is that Jesus is coming back. For those of kids who are in the audience who are taking notes this morning, that's the first fill in the blank. Jesus is coming back. Notice that in verse 32, Jesus is speaking of a specific day, but concerning that day or that hour. He, he is saying that that day and that hour is something that's going to happen. And when Jesus makes promises, he keeps them. In fact, throughout the Bible, every time God makes a promise, God keeps his promise. We live in a world where people rarely keep their word. Politicians will lie through their teeth at at every sort of opportunity. And it's hard to find someone who will just give you the straight truth and will hold to their word. God always tells the truth. God keeps his promises. We know that in part because the first advent, the first coming of Christ was promised. If you've been with us as a church this last month, we've been in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, we saw that very first Christmas promise. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God by eating of the fruit, God turns to the serpent who had tempted them and speaks not just to the serpent, but to the one who is inhabiting the serpent, Satan himself, and declares to to Satan that he will be crushed and how does he say that well in genesis 3:15 it says between your offspring and hers he will crush your head here in genesis 3:15 we see a picture of a promise that god makes that there would be an offspring a descendant of eve who would one day defeat the serpent That promise, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, is fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, at the first advent. That's one of the that is the first sort of prophecy pointing to Christ in the Bible, but there are many more. As we mentioned earlier, a guy named Isaiah comes along. And Isaiah will say, hundreds of years before Christ lives, that there would be a virgin who would be with a child, and that that child's name would be Emmanuel, God with us. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we get a text that tells us that the eternal one was going to be born in Bethlehem. These were prophecies that were declared that people wondered whether or not they would ever come true. I mean, hundreds of years would pass as people would await the anticipated Messiah. And then we discover, as we will celebrate in this season and on the twenty. Fifth, that those are fulfilled in the person of Christ. Christ is the one who crushes the serpent. Christ is the one who is named Emmanuel. Christ is the one who is born of a virgin. Christ is the one who is born in Bethlehem. Christ is the eternal one. The long-awaited promised Messiah and King is born. God keeps his promises. So we know that Jesus is coming back because God keeps his promises. But the second thing that we we know, right, is that when Jesus says that he's coming back, we can trust him, that he keeps his promises, but we also know that only God knows when. Notice that again in verse 32. Who knows? Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. Christ in this moment says that he knows that he's coming back, but he's not sure when. When? Which means that your friends on Facebook certainly don't know. Which means the prophets and the so-called preachers who have radio shows who make plenty of money off of telling you that they know exactly when Christ returns are lying to you. The TV preachers are wrong. Nobody knows when. So you can be sure of two things in the promise. One, that if Jesus makes a promise, he will keep it. He is coming back. And this is kind of hard for us, right? Because when we think about the first coming, we kind of get it. We live on the side of history that gets to look back and be like, wow, God did all of that. That's so wonderful. But then we hear about these future promises and we find ourselves a bit skeptical. But God keeps his promises. He is coming back. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions in the world, When in doubt, trust the one who rose from the dead. That's my advice. Always trust the guy who rose from the dead. So nobody knows when. So two things we know. Jesus is coming back, only God knows when. So that's the promise of the second advent. But let's talk about the preparation for the second advent. Okay, so maybe so far you, you hear this and you hear Christ saying this and you're thinking like the disciples, Jesus is coming back. Okay, I trust that that's going to happen. Okay, he, nobody knows when. I, I'm here, I trust in the promise. But what do I do in light of that reality? How do I prepare well, Jesus says in verse 33, in verse 34, in verse 35, and in verse 37, four times in this short text, Jesus says that we prepare by staying awake. Kids, that's the second fill in the blank. We must stay awake. Notice that the opposite of what we are to do is found in verse 36, when Jesus says, lest he come and suddenly find you asleep. Jesus says, I am going to come back. And when I come back, I want to find you Awake and not asleep. Kids, when you came in this morning, you got a bag, and inside of that bag are a bunch of trinkets, a lot of trinkets, actually. And one of them is a tiny little light. You can grab that light out if you want, and you can turn it on. It will slowly change color. It functions as a a tiny little light, and I gave you that light. I wanted you to see that light because of this reason. What you know and I know is that light tends to keep us awake. We tend to fall asleep in dark, comfortable, soft places. But when the light is on, it keeps us awake. I mean, all of us have experienced moments where we have said to someone, could you please turn off the light? I'm trying to sleep. Light keeps us awake. And I gave you that light as a reminder that as Christians, we are to stay awake. What does that mean? Does that mean we are never to sleep? Christians should never go to sleep. That's absolutely not what I'm talking about. What does it mean to prepare? What does it mean to stay in wake in light of these promises and in this reality? How do we stay awake? Well, I just want to press in, lest you think that the second Advent is a kind of, you know, um, ambiguous reality that makes very little difference in my life. Jesus says that it makes a difference and that we ought to stay awake. What does that look like? Let me press in a few different ways. One of the ways we stay awake is that we don't take vengeance. We don't take vengeance. Do you ever notice that when someone hurts you or offends you, how quickly you rush to sit on the throne? You get really judgy, don't you? When someone hurts or offends you, your immediate, your, your immediate sort of reaction is often to declare that the person uh, who's done wrong, you know exactly what they did wrong, you know um, exactly what they deserve as their punishment, and you look for ways to enact that punishment. We get really judgy. We get really in charge. We look for ways to make people pay when they have hurt us. One of the ways in which we stay awake is by being anti-vengeance. You probably notice that this begins to happen. Someone offends you and you instantly, in their mind, in your mind, they become the the wrong one. Um, You don't really care a ton about their motives. You don't really care a lot about how they got to that place. You're probably not asking questions like, well, were they, I wonder What well, if they had a bad day. Maybe they didn't get much sleep. Maybe they, maybe they had, who knows what's going on. You kind of separate all that out. You think you know exactly what's going on in their world. They hurt you, and you know exactly what should happen to them. So you have some sort of ideas of the ways they should pay. And then sometimes you'll even look for ways to bring about that kind of justice. And if you don't deal with that judginess, vengeance that exists in your heart when you're wrong, some things will happen. It will begin to destroy you. One of the ways it will make you really bitter towards that person. That's one of the first things that happens. You get bitter. You get resentful towards them. You'll start to caricature them. Have you ever done this? Have you ever listened to someone in your life talk about someone else that they're mad at? they'll talk about that person and they sort of talk about them and you're listening going like that doesn't sound like them at all that sounds like a caricature of them that you've concocted in your mind so that you can remain angry at them this kind of vengeance this kind of judgment it leads to bitterness caricature it leads to generalizations all people like are like that i, I know people like that they're all like that kind and it can lead to hatred Hatred of the other. If you you don't deal with that, bitterness, generalization, hatred, let me remind you that if Christ is coming at the second advent, then you don't get to sit on the throne because that's not your throne. You can't, you're grossly unqualified to sit in the judgment seat of God. Do you realize that? First of all, you're totally imperfect, right? You use a double standard on others. You will often point at others when they wrong you and say that they're in the wrong. But when you wrong other people, you'll look for a pass. You're imperfect. You don't know everything. I know you sometimes think you do, but you don't. You don't know what they're going through, what situation happened, what things led to this particular moment. And just to be clear, you don't have the ability to enact perfect justice. You are wholly unqualified for the judgment seat. So one of the ways that you can stay awake this morning is by declaring before God, God, I'm going to forgive that person. I'm not going to hold anger towards them because I don't know what's going on. I can't enact justice. I'm not in control. I'm an imperfect person, and I'm going to trust that the judgment seat is a seat that you are wholly qualified to sit on, and I am not. Amen? Amen? Secondly, we don't procrastinate. Notice here that Jesus is talking about staying awake as it pertains to the work we have to do. He says it's like a man going on a journey, verse 34. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. So he says it's like a man who's leaving and people have work to do. And the doorkeeper especially has work to do. What is the doorkeeper's job? The doorkeeper's job is to remain awake until the master comes home. The door can be open. The master can be let in. The doorkeeper has a very important job, namely to let the master back in. And it's really important that the doorkeeper doesn't fall asleep. But it's not only the doorkeeper that has a job or work to do while the master is away. Notice here that the other servants each have their work in verse 34. Verse 34. One of the great benefits of the second advent is that we recognize that the work that God is doing, God continues to do in the world, and that we, in our work, get to participate in that work. Not everything that we do in this world will last, but everything done for the sake of God will last forever. That's quite a promise that God makes. Now, sometimes maybe you've met some Christians who, when they become Christian, they instantly begin to kind of lean back, kick their feet up, and they sort of just wait around to die or for Christ to return. But that is the opposite of the attitude that Christ says that we are to have. Rather, our work should begin to reflect the future reality of God's coming kingdom. If I told you right now, Jesus is coming back and he's going to bring about the completion of his kingdom, would you want to be found in that moment, having given your life to things that will last and things that will matter or things that will fade away? Just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus says that we, like to, we often like to pursue earthly treasure which doesn't last, but we ought to pursue the treasure that does last, the kind that lasts forever. I want to remind you this morning, that you are gifted by God, that, 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 that your personality, your presence, your time in space, the work you have, the things you're passionate about, you weren't made to be anybody else. You were made uniquely you by God for him and for his kingdom. Every Christian should be doing ministry Your ministry might look different in Monday and Tuesday where you're serving and how you're serving, but how you go about doing your job, how you go about loving your family, how you go about raising your children, how you go about treating your neighbor, how you go about living, those things really matter. They've been gifted to you by a God who made you for a reason. You're not an accident. You're made on purpose. And you want your life to make sense in that coming kingdom. One of the analogies I often think about um, is uh, I I like to think of Christian faith as hearing a song that hasn't been heard by everybody yet, but is a song that will be the song of all creation. If you begin to dance to that rhythm, to that tune, it's going to look a little weird now. If you start dancing to a song that no one can hear, it's going to look a little strange. And people might make fun of you a little bit. What are you doing? Why are you living like that? Why are you doing that? Why are you moving like that? But one day that song will be clear. And it's my hope that your life and your dance and your rhythms will make sense in light of that song. So don't procrastinate. Christ is coming back. And we want the work that we've been doing to matter. Third, we don't lose hope. We don't lose hope. It is easy to grow weary and cynical. Look again at verse 35. Jesus says, stay awake because you don't know when the master of the house will come. Will he come in the evening? Will he come at midnight when the rooster crows or in the morning? The reality is that we can get really cynical at times. We can, we can grow weary we can begin to wonder whether or not anything we're doing really matters at all. This becomes a temptation that's found in the early church. Paul the apostle in 1 Corinthians writes a letter to the church, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, it might be on the screen. Um, Paul will point out here, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul reminds them that their work matters because it's going to be tempting for them to begin to wonder whether or not Christ is going to return at all. There are moments where in which we are living in this life and we begin to wonder, Christ, are you, where are you? I turn on the news, God, where are you? Right, we look at at our world, what's going on? We look at, sometimes when things are going really well in the world, we look at things are going well and we go, man, this is fantastic. And when things are going really poor, we wonder, God, where is your hand? What are you doing? Where is this all heading? But the promise of scripture is that Because the second coming is real, we never get to lose hope. Hope is hard to find. In our world today, many people want hope. They believe in hope. They like the idea of hope, but they don't know where to find hope. Real hope. Hope that you can bank your life on. Hope that enables you to look through any situation that you're facing and saying, yes, this is difficult. Yes, this is hard. Yes, this is crippling at times. But I still believe that there is good reason to hold on to the promises and to the future because God is real and God has made promises and God keeps his promises. And therefore, I have hope in the face of weariness and cynicism. Brother, sister, friend, neighbor, I don't know where you're at this morning as it pertains to your own weariness. I don't know how exhausted or how tired you are. I don't know how close you've been to giving up in the last season. But I do know that hope is real. I know that hope is real because I know that Christ is coming again. So we are anti-vengeance, anti-sloth, anti-cynical. And instead, as Christians, we are to be and have good reason to be a people of peace people of joy, and a people of hope. Let me ask you this morning, how awake have you been to the reality of the second advent? Is this only for some people? No, look at verse 37. Jesus says, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All of us must stay awake. Finally, the point of the second advent Why the second advent? From the beginning of scripture all the way to the end, the Bible is perpetually interested in this question. What is wrong with the world? And what will make everything right? Now, as we've talked often in our church, we recognize that there was a time when it felt like economic progress was the solution to everything. And then we saw that greed is still a thing. We thought that technology and its advancement was the answer to everything. And then we discovered that technological addiction and our very vices can be, we can take the good things that humans make and we can continue to use them for destruction. When I talk about the challenge of hope, I also wrestle with, and our world wrestles with, this question. What is it that's going to fix this broken world? What's going to make the world right And the answer, according to the Bible, again and again, is that Jesus will make everything right. Now, in verse 24, which we didn't read, but is just above us at the coming of the Son of Man, it says in Mark 13, 24, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is different than straw in a manger. This is the son of man coming in clouds with power and glory. Coming to make everything right. We know. That in this world, everything is not right. Let me ask you a question, friend, neighbor, if you're here and you're not a Christian, how are things going to be made right? Are things going to be made right? Maybe you're in that camp of thinking, you know, I, I don't think things are going to be made right. Everything's just kind of terrible in perpetuity. There is no hope. Maybe you think, well, we just give it a few billion years and eventually the sun's going to explode and everything's going to disappear and nothing we do will ultimately matter in any way, shape, or form. Another kind of hopelessness. But maybe you get out every day hoping, thinking that in some way, shape, or form, this world's not the way that it's supposed to be. And maybe you long for things to be different. Is there anything that can make the world right? The promise of Christ's second coming is that when Christ returns, we will see an end to death. We will see an end to disease. We will see an end to violence. We will see an end to hunger, end to oppression. We will see an end to all of that ails us in the world. Jesus is coming to make everything right. But that will also mean dealing with all of that that is wrong. Every time I am preaching a sermon and I'm praying in preparation and saying, Lord, would you come back and just deal with all of the injustice in the world? I instantly recognize that there's a real problem. And here's the problem. My prayers, if I'm honest, sound something like this. God, would you deal with the injustice in the world, but could you give me a pass? I don't know if you feel like that. You look out in the world and you go, God, I see what's wrong with the world. God, would you take, deal with all of the greediness, all of the selfishness, all the self-centeredness? Would you, all of the thievery, all of the lying, all the cheating, all of the stealing, all of the unnecessary violence, all of the killing, would you just deal with all the hatred, deal with all of the injustice in the world, but if you could just give me a pass, that'd be nice. The question in the Bible again and again is how does God... Bring about justice. How does he bring about justice to those who have done wrong without ending those who have done wrong? Years ago, I found myself in traffic court. I imagine you've maybe been there before. I've certainly been there a couple of times. Um, And I was in traffic court and I was struck this one time when I was there where uh, a guy in front of me had uh, gone before the judge and he had broken the carpool lane. He had done the unthinkable. He drove in the carpool lane, but it was just him by himself. And he got a ticket for it. And if you drive down in Los Angeles and in California, you'll see these signs that say carpool fine minimum. And there's a price attached to it. I think it's like $571 something like that. There's a minimum price to it. And so he was standing before the judge and he said to the judge, I was late for work. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I'll never do it again. I've never done it before. Um, He just just was so, he felt so sorry. And the judge said, I am so, I'm sorry to hear that. I imagine all of that is true. Absolutely. Um, You owe $571. (laughs) And he said, no, but like, don't you understand? Like, can you, can you lower it? Can I get less of a price? And the judge's like... Now the sign—it's a $571. That's just what—that's what it is for what you have done. And I kept listening to him make all of these um, excuses for why he shouldn't have to pay it. And I was thinking about how, like, like what if he had said before the judge. Um, You don't understand, I'm a really good father. And that day after I got a ticket, like, I took my kids out for ice cream and I gave my wife a back massage and then I helped an old lady cross the street the next day and then I did what was right at work for a week and I I just kept doing good things. Your Honor, since that day I got that ticket, I have only done only good things all the time. The judge would have said, that's lovely. It's $571. (laughs) Why is that? Because... The amount of good deeds that we do don't change the fact that we have broken the law, in this case, the carpool law. And the same is true with God. The, here's the general thinking in our world today. Be a good person, and if you're more good than bad, you're okay. Okay. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches fundamentally that each one of us has broken God's law. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've been self-centered. We've, we've jumped onto the throne when it wasn't ours to sit. And we've done all kinds of things. And God says before us, you're guilty for that. And we say, but God, I've done these other good things. And God says, that's lovely, but you're guilty for your sins. And so the question then we have to wrestle with is, God, how are you going to return and deal with injustice without ending us? And God's answer to the second, right? His answer to that reality is found in the first advent. That Christ comes and he pays the fine for us. That's all the songs we sing, all the things we celebrate. It all points to this cross, The cross points to the place where God took on flesh, lived a perfect life, never broke any of God's laws, and then goes to the cross to take upon himself every sin that you and I have committed. He takes it into himself and then pays our fine for us. So that God says in the end to us, who's going to pay your fine? Are you going to pay for the wrong you've done? Or will you let me, because I love you, pay for it for you? That's the heart of the gospel. That you should know that in your rebellion towards God, God's response is to die for you, to pay for your sins, and to offer you life with him forever. That's the best news in the world. He offers us his life, and he offers us hope in the face of the injustice that we have committed. So let me ask you, are you trusting the promise? Are you staying awake? Do you understand where hope can be found? Do you see how God is a God of justice and a God of love? Do you see how you can have peace with God? I'll end this morning with C.S. Lewis. Um, he wrote an essay called The World's Last Night. And in this essay, Lewis is talking about the second coming, on remembering the second coming. And he says this, he says, A man of 70, a 70-year-old man, need not be always feeling, much less talking, about his approaching death. But a wise man of 70 should always take it into account. He would be foolish to embark on schemes which presuppose 20 more years of life. He would be criminally foolish not to make his will. Lewis's point is that when we think of the second coming, we're not talking about it all the time. In fact, if you've got someone in your life who's talking about it all of the time, they probably don't understand it. So be careful of those who want to talk about it all the time. At the same time, Lewis says, but if we do not live with a perpetual awareness of it, then we will miss out on all that it offers us. This Christmas, we will celebrate that Christ is coming at Christmas, that Christ has come, that God is with us. But as we begin our Advent season, we focus on Christ's return. Christ will come back as he promised. We ought not to obsess about it, but we should not be caught unaware of it. Our responsibility is to stay awake. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are going to make all things right. Every one of us in this room deals with sadness, deals with the brokenness in the world. We see injustice, we see hatred, we see poverty. We see destruction. We see all of that in the world, and if we're really honest, we recognize that we are contributors to it. We partake in it, for we have often been arrogant and greedy and self-centered. We have punished those who have wronged us. We've taken vengeance. We've procrastinated. We've become, become cynical. Lord, we want to live with this awareness that you are going to return. We want to shape the way that we live. So, Lord, I want to begin by praying for those who are here this morning who do not know you. I pray that they would consider your words, that that you will return to make all things right, but there is a way for them to be made right now with you, and that's by receiving what you have done for them. On the cross, Jesus dies is raised again the third day so that we can then say, God, my sins have been forgiven. They have been paid for. The debt that I owe you has been paid by Christ. And I receive that payment and I'm blessed and grateful that you would welcome me into your kingdom. I pray that none of us on that day when you return would be responsible for paying our own debts, but we would gladly receive Christ's payment. And I pray that each one of us would remain awake. We would keep our eyes focused on the second coming, that it would change the way that we live. Because Lord, we know that the second advent is as important as the first. So help us stay awake. It's in your name we pray, amen.